Hello and welcome to this special Faber podcast, which is one of a series marking the centenary of the birth of England's most significant 20th century composer, Benjamin Britten. Britten's association with Faber is a long one, dating back to the creation of Faber Music in 1964, one of whose express aims was to publish the composer's music. Since then, many books about the man and his music have appeared under the Faber imprint, including the multi-volume Selected Letters, the still-controversial 1992 biography by Humphrey Carpenter, and the books by John Bridcutt, the writer and filmmaker who's my guest in this programme, which is the first of two. In this programme, John talks about his own reactions to Britain as composer and conductor, and also tells me about his book, Essential Britain, a compendium and companion which tells you about Britain's record collection, his cars and pets, and each of his major works. When I met John recently, I began by asking him about his first encounter with Britain's music. I think the first time I came across his music was as a choir boy at school, singing as due in April, which is one of the movements of a ceremony of carols, which is sort of quite gentle, and um, I sing of a maiden that is makeless. It's striking. I, I can remember it to this day very well. And then I got involved in, I think, the the Britain Jubilati for with, with um, a small ensemble at school. But it wasn't. It was a few years later that it really sort of started to strike home with me. I think, and that was the Simple Symphony, which I didn't play in at school at first. I heard it and and thought this is very engaging. And then the Ballad of Little Musgrave and Lady Barnard which is a fabulous piece, and I'd still reckon that that's one of my favourite Britain pieces, not least for the amazing piano part, which it's like an orchestra, but somehow it's all within two hands on the piano. And then I started seeing, encountering the operas by seeing them on television. I saw The first opera I saw, I think, was Billy Budd in the BBC broadcast, black and white, in the mid-60s sometime, with Peter Glossop as Billy Budd. I won't pretend that I grasped it at all. In fact, Billy Budd is a piece that's only really sort of got to me much more recently. It's quite a difficult piece to get into straight away. And then, actually, after I'd first encountered Britain by singing for him, I took part in a student performance at university of Curly River, his church parable, the first church parable. And that was... A fantastic experience. I think we did three performances. I believe it was the first student performance that ever been of the piece. And it got into my bloodstream completely. And in fact, so much so that I didn't really want to see it or hear it elsewhere. And that was a sort of a curse, if you like, that I only managed to get through this last summer when I saw it in in Orford and Suffolk for um, the first time for 40 years. It had meant so much to me that, you know, when you when there's a piece that really catches you, you sort of don't want to go and see it or hear it again in case it spoils the memory. So by the time you were in a performance of The Dream of Gerontius by Elgar, he was already quite well established in your pantheon. He wasn't just another composer. He was someone special to you. Yes, he was very special. I think... I certainly was aware at the tender age of 18 that he was very 
a very important figure, and I was a real thrill to be singing with him. On the other hand, I, at that age, I was sufficiently blasé, I think, that I didn't really capture all the things that he said. And I wish now that I had sort of written down all the pearls of wisdom that dropped from his lips. Probably there weren't that many pearls of wisdom because he was dealing with us as a choir, and I'm sure he was just telling us basic practical things that he wanted, and it wasn't full of insights into his work or, or Elgar's work. But I do, I do remember the significance of feeling I'm being conducted by this amazing man. In fact, we did the same summer. We sang with Michael Tippett as well. So to be conducted by Britain's two premier composers within a month of each other was an amazing experience. With Britain, it was exhilarating because he was such a, a fine conductor. Michael Tippett was not, I have to say. And, and we, we nearly came to grief on the piece that we did with him. But with Britain, you felt so safe because his, his conducting was crystal clear and you knew exactly what he wanted. He was very, very demanding, but so rewarding to sing for. And the thing I also remember, and this shows that I was sort of into his mindset, was that I thought how strange it was that he was conducting Elgar. You know, I, I just thought this is chalk and cheese. And it's only very recently that I've come to the view, I don't think it's actually widely shared, but it's the view, my, my view is that they're very similar, Britain and Elgar, and although their musical language is quite different, as characters, they're very much the same breed both very thin-skinned, both real craftsmen. I think Britain, although he was rude about Elgar for most of his life, I think he did admire his craft as an orchestrator. Elgar was different in that he was a lazy man, whereas Britain was far from lazy, incredibly hard-working, or puritanical in his work ethic. I think you say the Puritan work ethic might have been invented for him. <laughs> I think that's right. It's, it's a sort of... Um, I think it was inbred by his mother probably um, who was a low church Anglican who I'm sure espoused the, the ideals of duty and thrift and hard work but he had a real he, he, they, both he and Elgar were very sensitive to criticism had a, a bit of an inferiority complex at times when they weren't feeling supremely confident I mean a lot of the time both of them knew that they could do the job and were, were very confident in that but then they had moments of self-doubt. And if somebody came along at the wrong moment and said the wrong thing, it might be criticism. It might even be exaggerated praise, but they would clam up. And Britain, I think, certainly would have been a man who you could have had an evening with him which would have been utterly ch charming and fascinating. Or it could be an evening from hell. And since those days when you were conducted by him, you've gone on to become a, a documentary filmmaker and have made films on music. And in one of the books, you make the point that there is, for a composer who lived in the age of, um, of, of film, there is remarkably little documentary material of him conducting, of him in rehearsal. There's surprisingly little. It's embarrassing to feel that Death in Venice, which is one of his greatest operas, that we would never have seen him conduct because he was too ill. But nonetheless, there is, there's no evidence of that in its first performance, which, was, which owed so much to his vision of the piece. Of him conducting, there's remarkably little. There are a few concerts. But to see him actually working with an orchestra or with a choir, I constantly marvel at how blind or deaf television executives and some producers are to the 
marvels of rehearsal. This is where music is made. It's, it's the crucible in which the performance is fashioned. And although the performance of, is, of course, essential and important, if you haven't actually witnessed the rehearsal, you don't begin to understand half of what's going on. There is one wonderful piece on Canadian television of his Nocturne, which is a piece of 20, 25 minutes, a wonderful song cycle with different instruments of the orchestra accompanying the tenor voice. And then in the last movement, they all combine uh, in a full orchestral movement. And there's this wonderful rehearsal with the Canadian, uh, maybe the CBC Symphony Orchestra, something like that, for Canadian television. And he's rehearsing meticulously and not much humour, very, very particular in what he wants. He goes on and on. And then Peter Pierce wanders over in the middle of the rehearsals because he hadn't been singing. He was just, Ben was just rehearsing the orchestra. And Peter Pierce says, Ben, I think it's time we did the performance. And suddenly you know, Ben says, oh, yes, of course, we must. And so they, then they do the full performance. And it's a wonderful insight into his intense preoccupation with the detail of what he was trying to achieve. And, and he's never rude to performers, but he's demanding and there's, there's no soft soaping. And am I right in remembering that his producer at Decca also recorded a rehearsal that he was conducting without his knowledge? This was John Culshaw who he definitely had quite a soft spot for, I think. He was recording producer at Decca. He later became a BBC top producer of and, and produced some of Britain's operas. I mean, the Burning Fiery Furnace, which was filmed by the BBC in the late 60s. That was because of John Culshaw. But John Culshaw was the recording producer for Decca at the time of the recording of The War Requiem in 1963, and yes, he, unbeknownst to Britain, gathered all the outtakes from the recordings. And so Britain would be, you know, they'd do a take of a particular movement and then he'd go back through the movement saying what was wrong. And all this is on, the reels of tape were going round and round. And Britain had no idea this was happening. And I think it was his 50th birthday in 1963, that would have been this November that year, after they'd been doing the recording, that John Culshaw presented him with a disc. I mean, he gave him a, an LP of these outtakes. And Britain was absolutely horrified and very angry that he'd been recorded without his knowledge. I think Decker had made sure that they had a spare copy of this. And But Britain actually did not throw this away. He, he just put it in a cupboard, and I'm sure never ever listened to it. And so there's one copy there and there's at the Britain Peers archive and there's and Decca have their own material and it indeed has been issued now on CD. And it's a fascinating document because you hear the intense nervous energy of the man. He turns the pages as though he's tearing the score, goes psh, psh, as he's going back through the pages to work out what he got to say to the sopranos, what he got to say to the boys' choir, and he's always got a list of about eight things in his head. And he just goes through them really economically. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And there's not a wasted second. And it's an example which many, you might call more professional conductors, conductors who work as conductors full time, would do well to emulate. Because it's so economical and so focused on what he 
had identified as problems in the previous performance and previous take that he needed to correct. It struck me, John, that a composer as multifaceted, both as a man and as an artist, as Britain, was very well suited to the approach you take in the essential Britain. Maybe you could sort of respond to that and say a little bit about how you approached him in order to to put together that book. Well, the, the extraordinary thing about Britain is that I think he is probably the best documented composer of any composer in history. There are some wonderful composer museums in Europe, Verdi, Beethoven, Mozart, and so on. But no one is as well documented as Britain. If you think that there are some 80,000, 80, 80,000 letters in the Britain Peers archive, half of which are written by Britain and half he received, roughly that sort of order. And the reason for this incredible documentation is Britain himself. He was a magpie. He, he, he hoarded, um, or a squirrel, perhaps I should say. Magpies steal things. I don't think he necessarily stole them, but he squirreled away all this stuff and whenever he got a letter, he wrote at the top the, name, the, the surname of the person in pencil who it had come from so that it could be filed properly. All this was filed away and um, all his manuscripts, the various different drafts of manuscripts. I mean, nowadays, with composers writing direct onto computer, these drafts will be very hard to unearth by future historians, if, if at all. It depends if if composers save these drafts or not. All Britain's drafts are there. He very seldom tore things up. There was a, supposed to be a case of a letter that he didn't like from W.A. Jordan, which he tore into shreds and sent back in the same envelope. <laughs> um, that was a very rare example. He hoarded all these things. And even, even very revealing intimate letters are preserved, yes. aren't they? Very revealing letters, that's right. He had, a, he had an eye to history, and he was not afraid of history, I think. And this enables you, because he, these letters are not often about music. I mean, they're about the mechanics of music. He's writing to his opera producers and set designers and librettists and so on about the practical problems of putting on his operas. But a lot of the time, he's writing to his family, he's writing to friends about the local music club, he might be writing about what he'd had for lunch, he'd be certainly writing about going swimming in the North Sea, and all these different aspects of his life, about his pets, about his cars, all these things emerge piecemeal in the letters. And so he's very rich territory for for writing a, what you might call a kaleidoscopic account of his life, through the scores that he kept. I mean, the, when he was a boy, he, when he got his miniature scores, he started collecting them from the age of six or seven. And he numbered them, you know, so they're, they're all numbered up to the first 150, something like that. And so you can actually identify this, the growth of his musical taste from the scores that he owned. And you've got all his discs, all his 78s and, and LPs. I mean, incredibly, some of them sort of annotated on the sleeve. And I suppose that can be a blessing and a curse for, for a writer who's approaching such a wealth of material and trying to compose a, a composite picture. It is. You're right. It's both blessing and curse because it's a blessing in the sense that there's always the chance of finding something new. And indeed, you always do find something new about Britain because 
people have trawled through this stuff, but there's so much of it that there's always stuff they're going to have missed. So you can always find new things. On the, the curse is that you will never write the definitive book on Britain because there's, there's always going to be more stuff for other people to discover. You have to, at some point to say, that's enough. I've done enough research. I've just got to write the book. And that's what I had to do. And, you know, otherwise, you, you would sort of drive yourself to, into insanity um, as you kept on absorbing new material. As you've already alluded to, that the book is very wide-ranging in the aspects of Britain's life that it, it covers, from his pets to his travels to his record collection to his cars to his, his manuscripts and his opinions of others and others' opinions of him. But I guess the, the, the bit that I keep coming back to is your companion to the works in which you survey his entire output. And you, perhaps controversially, award stars to the works. Now, tell me how difficult it was, well, first of all, to, you know, to decide whether you were going to do that, and then once you decided to do it, to actually execute it as a plan. I thought it would be a bit of fun, to be quite honest. I mean, I hope people haven't taken it too seriously. Alan Britton, his nephew, uh, says he will never speak to me again because I didn't give Winter Words five stars as opposed to four, and he's probably right. But in fact, the star system was, was for me quite useful because it was a way of actually focusing my thoughts about the work, the, the, the corpus of work. Instead of just thinking about all these different pieces individually, I had to try and see this amazing range of works as a whole and try to see the way that it developed I didn't, you know, it would be a formidable task, I think, to try and listen to all his music chronologically. Not necessarily hugely rewarding, but I mean, it would require a heck of a lot of organisation to achieve that. But I did, I got a much stronger sense of the chronology by listening to it and, and being tr quite careful to, to clock in my own mind at what point in his development each work occurred. But it did mean listening to all the music and you know, that's quite a tough assignment in itself because some of it is still, as with all composers, is quite obscure and you've got to dig around to try and find a recording. There are a few pieces, of course, that aren't recorded and then, you know, it's a matter of trying to see the music itself and work from that. Um, and you're also evaluating recordings, weren't you? You're also, you know, not just going for, for, for one well, recording, but you're also sort of suggesting maybe multiple recordings in the case of major works. Yes, and the recordings, of course very hugely and it's the great danger is to think that a recording you're listening to is in some way definitive i mean you've got britain took great care to record nearly all his operas himself i think because he had a sense again of history that he wanted to put down the composer's view but since his death and since peter pierce's death who was after all for a lot of the vocal work was the sort of the template people have become freer to interpret the music just like they do with any other composer, entirely on the basis of what's in the score and not to be held to account by comparisons with the composer's own recording. And this has been very interesting because it's, it's shown how the work can develop in, in terms of people's understanding and the, the, people's understanding of context and of the way that, that the world is changing around us and we that affects the way we view works of art. So it, w it was an incredibly exciting, but exhausting experience to go through all the pieces. I guess you, you can't rush at it, can you? You've probably got to give yourself breathing space in order to, to think these things through, to digest and come up with your, your commentary on it. 
Yes, otherwise it's, there's real indigestion. You have to take a break. It's also important in this process to be listening to other music so that you you keep yourself grounded in the context of the time and you, you and you try to pick up resonances and, and work out sometimes the way things have emerged in Britain's work. I mean, I, I was very struck actually, it was after I'd done the book, but I went last year to a performance of Berlioz, um, the Berlioz Requiem, the Grand Mestre More, in St. Paul's Cathedral. And it suddenly struck me that the weird chords for the woodwind, well, for, for, for the wind, particularly flutes and trombones and tuba, in the Hostias and the Agnus Dei, these concords, which are sort of at, at the extremities of the pitch range, I suddenly thought this is where the chords from Billy Budd come from, the, the climactic 34 chords that are a replacement, if you like, for the interview, the critical interview between Captain Veer and Billy Budd when Captain Veer is telling Billy Budd that he's going to be executed. And Britain decides to represent this with this sequence of concords, some of them very loud, some soft, all different notes. And this, I thought, this comes from Berlioz. And I'd never seen this alluded to in any way. I don't know whether Britain knew the Grand Mestre more. I mean, the thing is, he knew most music because he was a very assiduous listener when he was young. But the, the work is not often performed, so I don't know how often he managed to hear it. But, it, you know, that sort of thing, you get these sudden insights. And maybe it was just two minds thinking alike. But sometimes the coincidence seems too powerful to, yes. to be purely coincidence. Did some works, as a result of this listening process, go up in your estimation? And perhaps did some also go down? Yes, a piece that really went up in my estimation was Gloriana, which I'd not really listened to complete before. And it struck me that it's a really formidable piece particularly in view of the circumstances of its commission to be the coronation opera and all the sort of baggage that was entailed with that in terms of satisfying the need to have a celebratory piece. And I thought this is interesting because it's a real, it's a fantastic drama. It's a real psychological drama and yet has the, the required celebratory element to it. Not everyone would share that view, but I, I think it's certainly at the front of the second rank of Britain operas. Pieces that went down in my estimation. I mean, it's clear that Owen Wingrave has never been up in your estimation. <laughs> Owen Wingrave, poor thing. I always feel it's a bit of an ugly duckling. This was the opera he wrote for, for television. Exactly, and maybe that's the part of the problem. I have a sort of sneaking feeling that he, he would like to have ducked out of it. I mean, he was, he was very committed to the story, Henry James' story, which was a sort of, well, served his pacifist message. But I think he found the business of writing for television extremely irritating. And he really only went ahead with it because he'd been given a fat fee by the BBC, um, surprisingly large in my view. And he'd already donated this to the Maltings Rebuilding Fund because the Maltings Concert Hall had burnt down the previous year. And so he was committed, you know, he'd, it wasn't as though he could say, I'll do without the money. He'd already committed the money to this charitable purpose. So he had to go ahead with it. There are some wonderful moments in the music, I don't deny that. I think as a drama, it's 
very it's stretched in terms of its sort of what is really credible when Owen Wingrave I don't know if this is in the book I haven't checked it but when he turns up at the front door of his ancestral home and is sort of annoyed that none of his family have come to meet him you think hang on he's at Paramore this fancy house surely the butler would have opened the door (laughs) and I think that the the whole opera is full of caricatures which I'm sure is not what Britain meant but the the military grandfather figure Sir Philip Wingrave is is a caricature and Peter Pears knew this and it was I think he said to Britain right at the end of the composing process maybe while they were rehearsing it that at the moment when Owen Wingrave is found dead he said can't I sing something you know because he comes to see the dead body and and he's giving not given nothing to sing and this wretched old man seems to be delighted that his grandson has um, perished from seeing a ghost or whatever and Britain relented and gave him he, he, he allowed him to sing my boy or something like that and I think that's a sign that Piers knew that this character was not really credible and he needed a, a touch of humanity it suffers I think the, the whole opera suffers from uh, my in my view from having seen it first on television in the original intention I mean, I watched it as a Britain enthusiast in 1971 and I remember being slightly surprised by hearing one of the characters saying, would you like a glass of sherry? I thought this seemed a bit absurd in an opera. But anyhow, um, it had its weaknesses. I mean, television was struggling with opera as a sort of stage version. It wasn't, it wasn't filmed in the sense that you sometimes now see operas filmed on television as a film. It was basically a televised version of a stage production. And so there were, there were filmic devices woven into it, but nonetheless it was all happening in a studio. And that was a weakness. Uh, now you do it quite differently. But it just seems to me that Britain lost his sense of proportion. He didn't realise, I suppose it often happens with people with a strong cause that they're propounding. He didn't see where the audience was coming from. And um, he, he, you know, he was protesting too much, really. Not only do you have a star system, John, for evaluating works, you also have a key symbol uh, in the text. Tell me what those keys betoken. Well, I felt for someone coming to Britain from scratch, as it were, I mean, certainly there are a lot of pieces of Britain that I would not recommend them to go to straight away because, you know, you, you've got to work your way into the psyche of a composer before necessarily, particularly a contemporary composer, mm-hmm before necessarily sort of getting inside his skin. But there are other pieces of Britain which speak to you directly. And I was trying to identify those that give a key to unlock the door into, into Britain's heart, if you like, to understanding what really is the core of his music and what motivated him, what where he's expressing himself most directly. And often these are quite early pieces because in a way their expression is more accessible and more approachable but not always I mean I was rather surprised to find myself giving a star to a very late piece and this was a movement in his third string quartet in fact the last just about the last complete piece that he wrote 
And this was a movement called solo, where the first violin soars into the stratosphere with an amazing melodic line. And the other instruments are sort of doing amazing sort of percussive effects and harmonics. And it's pushing the technique of the string quartet to its limit. And in fact, you, th you can't credit the idea that there aren't some wind instruments in there. It sounds so almost vocal. It's a beautiful movement, absolutely enchanting. And I gave that a key because I felt that is the composer who is still at the end of his life pushing open new doors, trying to find a new language. He's not content to rest on his laurels. And it's a real insight into his character. If one day you get the call from Radio 4 inviting you onto Desert Island Discs, what will you take of Britain's? Oh dear, that's a difficult question. And I suppose like most people, I've often thought about my Desert Island Discs. I think I might take Abraham and Isaac, which would be a slightly surprising choice, but I think it is absolutely amazing piece for tenor, alto and piano and captures so much of Britain's versatility and and his technique and is also magical in its expression. It begins with this amazing chord consisting of just two notes but repeated through the octaves of the piano which is a chord of E flat just E flat and G and um, represents God and it's it's a chord that I think Michael Tippett well I think he said to Michael Tippett that it was a 64,000 well I don't know if he said 64,000 dollar chord but it was basically a chord that was going to make him millions there's a truth in that because it, it is an inspired choice but it's very hard to pick that desert island piece I mean I would you could have more than one Britain. <laughs> I could always go for more than one. You know, Peter Grimes has to be up there very, very high. Those sea interludes are extraordinary. And if, if he'd written nothing else, his place in British musical history would be secure for those. But the, the manhunt in Peter Grimes is one of the most electrifying moments I've ever experienced in the theatre. Seeing that the first time I saw it in, at Covent Garden in 1975, and feeling that the, the chorus of townspeople as they advance shouting Grimes, Peter, you know, Peter Grimes, Peter Grimes, and then just the final word, Grimes, and they advancing down the stage and almost falling into the orchestra pit. That was, you know, real hairs in the back of your neck time. But I'd also pick the third string quartet. <laughs> Who can deny the thrill of hearing the fugue at the end of The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra? And then the, the magical moment when the when the main theme comes back over the top of it. And you see the score now that's been saved for the nation, I'm glad to say, and is in the British Library. And you see that he wrote the whole fugue into the score in pencil from scratch, from his head. It wasn't something that was agonised and rubbed out. and It was just there, straight into his short score. I mean, what an amazing mind. It's, it's, only Mozart had ever been like that before. So I think half of your discs are probably going to be Britain. <laughs> Thank you very much. John Bridcat. You can find out more about Essential Britain and all of Faber's Britain publishing by visiting the website at faber.co.uk. I hope you'll also listen to part two of this interview in which John talks about his other book, 
Britain's Children, in which she explores Britain's often complex relationships with adolescent boys. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.